Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Tired of restless nights? Meet Lisa, the sleep expert. <sighs> Here at Lisa, we know that good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. That's why their mattresses are made for exceptional comfort and support, catering to every sleep need. Check out Lisa's Sapira Hybrid Mattress, named best hybrid mattress five years running. Sleep hot? The Chill Collection is built with cool-to-the-touch top fabric and layers of high-density comfort foams, all intended to remove excess body heat while maximizing comfort. With Lisa, getting a new mattress has never been easier. Delivery is free, and you have 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. Don't spend another night dreaming of better sleep. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com forward slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com forward slash iHeart. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Hi, hello, nerds. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. And I'm your host, that mouthy woman who likes Thebes. Liv. And today I'm here with just that. Thebes. So a few months ago, I got into a Twitter conversation about Thebes because I fucking love their mythology and I just generally find it to be a fascinating and underrepresented ancient city-state. And this is when I started speaking with Michael Furman, whose Twitter handle is just prof biosha so you know that he's the right person to talk to about thebes that biggest and baddest ass of ancient cities in biosha 
So today I am bringing you the conversation that we had. We had such an amazing time talking about Thebes, both its mythology and its history, the latter of which I was sorely unaware of. I can't wait to have more guests on to talk historical topics. I just want to know more, like so much more. But in today's episode, I learned a ton because Thebes is fascinating and not least because of its amazing mythology. That's why this episode is airing this week too, because when better to talk more about Thebes than after my Antigone series? Because Thebes. Oh, does Thebes absolutely get all the best mythology? Like, honestly, almost everyone you can think of is either from Thebes, features heavily in Theban mythology, or like is a descendant from a Theban family. They're everywhere and they're awesome. One thing of note is this was recorded before I put together the Antigone series, which you can tell because I explicitly say how long it's been since I've read any of Sophocles' Theban plays. But it also prompted me to do that series, so here we are. And as a little bonus at the end, Michael and I talk about some pseudo-archaeological claims when it comes to Thebes. Just nonsense stuff in the best way, because you know that I'm always here to push back against those shitty so-called documentaries that have little to no basis in actual history or archaeology. And no, right now at least, I'm not talking about that new Netflix show, but it also has all of those things. And with that, sit back and enjoy all you could ever ask for about ancient Thebes. Conversations, the forgotten polis of ancient Greece, history and mythology of Thebes with Michael Furman. We started this like interaction I guess a while back now but I basically saw the word Thebes and was like oh please come on my show and and talk about Thebes but so can you give me a bit of a rundown like why Thebes is your thing yeah so I think the origin of my interest in Thebes comes from when I was an undergrad and I was studying Greek history and classics at Bucknell University and my advisor was Stephanie Larson, who uh, is still a professor at Bucknell, and her topic is Thebes. Uh, She wrote a book on Boeotian identity uh, in the classical period or the late archaic and classical period. And it was something that I had never really thought about or heard about. And, you know, you read Oedipus in high school, usually, and you don't really associate it that much with Thebes, despite him being the king of Thebes and all of the action taking place in Thebes as well. And the more that I learned about it and thought about it, the more interesting I thought it was that compared to Athens and Sparta, Thebes gets very little in terms of modern work written about it. Not to say that it's forgotten because it is still very much at the forefront of thought, particularly as it comes to like Athenian drama, since so much Athenian drama is set in or around Thebes. And Thebes is also recognized as a pretty important place in both the fifth and fourth centuries. But in terms of the actual output of work on it, Athens and Sparta dwarf Thebes. And I thought, well, when I go to grad school, maybe I can change that. So when I uh, went to grad school, which I did both my master's and PhD at the University of St. Andrews over in Scotland, I thought I really want to write about Thebes and particularly about Thebes in a century or in a time period that often gets overlooked. And that's the fourth century BC. And I'm interested in politics and the military. And Thebes is a really interesting place for all of those things. But it's also an interesting place for mythology, as you know. And 
I just really thought about Thebes as a place that gets the short end of the stick, really, where you get in introductory Greek history courses, you often get a ton about Athens and Sparta in the fifth century. And then you get to the end of the Peloponnesian War, and then Socrates dies, and then some stuff happens, and then Alexander comes around. So I kind of wanted to fill in the stuff (laughs) that happens in between uh, the turn of the fourth century and Alexander, because it's really important in understanding Greek history. Cool. Okay, well, we'll, we will get to that, because I also am interested in the history. But you said mythology, so I have to bring that up. Uh, Because the thing about Thebes for me is, like, I, I fell in love with it when I, I don't even know how I found the myth of Cadmus and Harmonia, but I did. And like, they just became my complete and utter obsession. And in terms of like surviving sources, we have very little on them, but then we have like their whole dynasty of family members that then become, like you're saying, this like foil in Athenian tragedy where they're always using Thebes as this place to like set a story. There's these like it's heavy on the characters they can use, but it's also so explicitly not Athens that they can kind of like use it to to like pass judgments or like make their case about things. I find it so fascinating for so many different reasons. But but it's so true that like the actuality of Thebes kind of gets left behind in favor of this Athenian tragedy version of Thebes. Yeah, and I think the reality of Thebes on the ground as well in terms of the archaeology also gets overlooked. It's pretty well recognized that Thebes is under-excavated given the amount of attention that it receives in ancient sources. And part of that is just a matter of circumstance where the modern city is pretty much directly on top of Mm. the ancient city. But the other thing that really sparked my interest in Thebes that's related back to my time at Bucknell in my undergrad is that the year after I graduated uh, with my undergrad, Stephanie Larson and Kevin Daly, who was also at Bucknell, started an excavation in Thebes at the Temple of Ismedian Apollo. And I was able to get in kind of on the ground floor of that, working with them and being able to actually excavate in the city that you study, especially when it's Thebes, where there haven't really been foreign excavations in Thebes was really, really uh, cool. And it also solidified the idea that, yeah, Thebes is what I want to study in in graduate school. Oh, I love that. Yeah. It's just, it's such a fascinating area. And I, I, I want to go to, to modern Thebes too. We, I, I think I mentioned this to you when we were chatting, but um, friends of mine and I, we drove uh, to Delphi and on our way back, we like found ourselves in Thebes, like just, took some weird route on Google maps. And suddenly I'm like, but we didn't even know we were in it until we like drove past the, like, you're now leaving the Thiva mm-hmm. sign. And I was like, son of a bitch. Like I was just in Thebes <laughs> and I had no idea. And so, yeah, now it's like a big goal to like go there and know that I'm there. <laughs> yeah. They have a fantastic archeological museum that's been recently renovated. Uh, that has a ton of artifacts from the Mycenaean period all the way through um, the, uh, Middle Ages and the importance of Thebes and the silk trade and all of that. It's oh, a really, cool. really well done museum. Oh, that's good to know. Yeah, I've got to go. I love those little like regional museums in Greece. They're always so kind of like mm-hmm. underrated and have the best stuff. Uh, well, so history of Thebes then, that is where I, my brain is like completely <laughs> in the unknown. I could talk about their myths forever. Um, but yeah, so what is it about that time period that that makes it so interesting to you? Well, part of it is the idea that in the 
kind of mid fourth century, the early fourth century, Thebes really rises to prominence on the Greek stage. You have the uh, Corinthian war at the start of the fourth century that serves to weaken a lot of existing power structures uh, in Greece. Sparta wins the war, but does so kind of along the lines that Persia wants it to win. So Mm -hmm. it's really a, it's really a validation of Persian influence in Greece at this point in history. And you saw that in the Peloponnesian War as well, where Persia uh, exerts some influence too. But uh, Thebes gets deprived of its independence uh, fairly early on in the fourth century. It gets garrisoned by Sparta and uh, a puppet government is set up and then liberators come back from their exile in Athens to overthrow this puppet government and reestablish Theban control of Thebes. And the story itself is in Plutarch's Life of Pelopidas, along with a couple other sources. And it's a really engaging story to begin with because they taught, it's got a lot of murder. Uh, It's got men dressing up as uh, servants and women to slip into this party where they're able to have their armor on underneath the servants clothes and they pull it off and start butchering all of the uh, tyrants that are oppressing Thebes. It's a really engaging story. And yeah, things like that kind of catch your eye when you're reading through uh, ancient texts. And then Epaminondas and Pelopidas emerge out of that as leaders of Thebes. And they have a pretty large tradition that borders on mythological at times in terms of what gets attributed to them in Greek history. So that is what really uh, interested me because it marks a high point, at least in Theban political power in Greece. Not to say that they weren't powerful or important before that, because they certainly were. But historically, it seems like around that time, they form what is called the Theban hegemony, which is a little bit of a loaded term. Um, It's not really clear that they are actually striving for control of all of Greece, but they certainly become the most powerful actor in Greece at that point. Hmm, that's really interesting. Yeah, I need to like revisit all Greek history, apparently, because I'm so stuck in the mythology. And I every time I start having these conversations, I realize that so much of my knowledge is based entirely in Assassin's Creed Odyssey, which is like not valid. Uh, oh, I, it, I love that game, though. I use that in class game. all the time as a, <laughs> yeah, as a way to show reconstruction of the ancient world. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, I mean, I, I play it way too often. And then I re- have to like, remind myself that like, that is not history that that my knowledge is based on <laughs> like no you just know the the game uh but yeah though no, it's it's fascinating because it really is like so often a city that is completely left out of at least like certainly pop culture and things because you it's always you know sparta and athens are always going to be the more exciting ones to look at from that point of view they just made so much drama for themselves um so it's interesting that like once they that had kind of like fizzled out in whatever way that Thebes kind of took their own power without and maybe this is not like an accurate description but like it sounds like they kind of took their own power without like making as big a deal about it yeah and they had been I mean they had been quietly kicking the ass of Sparta and Athens for (laughs) several decades at least at the point that all of that um happened they get put briefly under athenian control in the fifth century but then um win the battle at Coronea and kick the athenians out uh, they beat the athenians again at the battle of delium in uh, 424 in the peloponnesian war they everyone forgets that thebes wins the peloponnesian war along with sparta because they're allied with sparta uh, right. and they 
they call for the destruction of Athens and Sparta says, pump your brakes. Um, we need to, we need to make sure that Athens is there to provide a check on you, uh, which is kind of smart on the part of the Spartans. But then um, you have the victory over the Spartans at Haliartus in which Lysander, the famous Spartan general is killed. Uh, that is a kind of Theban Boeotian victory. And then you have the retaking of the Cadmea, which is still even in the historical period, Cadmus still has that association with the central part of Thebes. And then you have the Battle of Leuctra in 371 that a lot of people say upends Spartan power. And it certainly weakens Spartan power, but it's not the cataclysmic event that everyone everyone thinks it is. Hmm. That's interesting. I do love that it remains being called the Cadmea. Like how, how much does that founding story... I mean, I know, I know there's like there's his founding story and then they there's the seven against Thebes is that that is what I'm thinking is the right sort of they they or no it's whatever the walls the story of the walls I'm gonna forget it and sound like a yeah the, but yeah the story of the twins Amphion and Zethus thank you uh, who yes. yes who build the build the walls of Thebes or are meant to yeah and Boeotia does have this double or Thebes at least does have this double foundation myth that is really interesting and gets entangled over time with each other. And uh, Dan Berman has done a lot of work on this in how myth influences kind of Theban, the Theban development of identity and how that can track onto real movements of people in the ancient world. Because you don't want to take the myth of Cadmus as literal, right? The idea that this guy shows up and kills a dragon and puts the teeth in the ground <laughs> and then the Spartoi rise out of the ground, start killing each other until there's only five of them left. And then those become the Thebans. Um, yeah, that's not, it's not real. Um, Unfortunately. Of course, to, to most people. <laughs> right. Um, and, you know, neither is the story of uh, Amphion and Zethus who build the walls of Thebes by some kind of the magic power of um, Amphion's lyre. So it's a very interesting double foundation and uh, Berman's hypothesis that I think is really, uh, really valid is that it represents two traditions in Thebes from, or at least in Boeotia from two different groups. So there is a group mm. that is migratory that comes from the East that brings the Cadmus myth with them. And then there is the myth of Amphion and Zethus that is more local in origin. And the two stories getting combined into a very odd chronology later on that's very entangled in terms of the family trees as well is a representation of later authors attempting to rectify and reconcile those two traditions with one another. Hmm, that's really interesting. Yeah. I, as a person who's obsessed with Cadmus, I haven't thought as much about the, the twins, uh, but that makes sense as a way to like the two different kind of stories coming together. What's always fascinated me too, is just the way that the, the Cadmian line is so powerful and like so famous in the mythology you know you have like Semele and becoming the mother of Dionysus and then we're going all the way down to like Oedipus and there's so many people in between like Acteon is also part of that the the Theban mm -hmm. dynasty and so, so is sorry. Ino and yes. so is Ino and her children Phrixus and Heli um who right. generate the golden fleece and yeah. deal with Jason and the Argonauts it's yeah it's uh very far-reaching the and very Cadmus. old like it's very mm -hmm. it, it they kind of come before all these other characters who are also really like origin kind of myths like 
hell like Phrixus and Helles, like you were saying. And it's interesting because it's so different from like the Athenian foundation myth, which is so specific to Athens and like doesn't go beyond Athens. But like the Theban myth goes so far beyond Thebes in terms of like the importance of the characters. It's it's I mean, it's it's just interesting, but also specific, even more interesting for how much Thebes itself didn't get to become quite as famous as their like mythological characters. Yeah. And geographically, it's much more global than a lot of other foundation myths are because you're talking about Cadmus as a Phoenician, right, coming from uh, the Levant or the uh, Eastern Mediterranean to Greece and inhabited. And there's theories about um, you get some there's about like, well, he led an army and invaded. And so he was a real person. But the story about the dragon isn't real or something like that. There's a lot of equivocation and trying to make it more historical than it probably actually is. Whereas you can mm-hmm. take a much broader view of it and say Cadmus is just representative of groups from the Eastern Mediterranean, from Asia, moving into Greece at this time when we know that a lot of migrations are happening. Mm-hmm. Well, and then and I'm blanking on whether this was part of what you just said, but the alphabet part too, right? Like him bringing the alphabet is so interesting and the way they kind of it's like they they want to concede that the alphabet of Greece didn't come from Greece itself that they like had all these these influences from elsewhere which I think is is quite refreshing because a lot of the times they're you know they've got some issues with people from the east <laughs> or just people who aren't Greek but the idea that he brought that and then there's also like I and I can't think of exact sourcing on this but I know there's got to be some connection but the idea of of the naming of the city of Thebes in reference to Egyptian Thebes too right like do you know what's going on there yeah, that's um, most of the time the uh, naming of Thebe, Thebes is after Thebe, who is the wife of Zethus. Um, mm. And I would have to think of, I'd have to think more about connections actually to Egyptian Thebes. That's nothing that I've thought about mm. um, a lot. But it's not like Thebe is a super uncommon name mm-hmm. either, because in the fourth century, you get uh, this Thessalian guy who I've talked about um on another podcast before Jason and uh, he names his daughter Thebe uh, mm. as kind of a connection to Thebes or at least an indication um, of some connection to Thebes. So it's not a name that is super unusual, um, but I think the marrying of Thebe to Zethus is one way to explain the name of the city in local terms versus the Cadmean term, which is seems to clearly be from the East. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting because I I feel like I've heard and again can't think of sourcing and it might be one of those like I read it so long ago and it was like somebody making something up and it just stuck in my head. Um, but I remember reading something about like oh Cadmus named it Thebes in honor of the great Thebes of Egypt. Of course, he doesn't have super strong ties to Egypt. You know, right. like there's there's Egyptus ties in the mythology, but that's all coming from Greece anyway. But it's interesting that that yeah that it is also then specifically in relation to to this Thebe as a person. There's just mm-hmm. there's so much to think about <laughs> now. My brain's just going <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> so Thebes, okay, because I'm just thinking like my knowledge is so based in the mythology, but I am so fascinated in the history as well. Um, mm-hmm. So when it comes to the history of Thebes, like I don't know, I'm never very good at like the idea the the warfare history and stuff I really like have not a great grasp uh it's all like cultural 
in my interest. Um, mm-hmm. But when it comes to Thebes, like, I'm just trying to think, like, it, it, say in the archaic period or something too, like, did they have a strong, you know, hold in the Greek world? Were they contributing in a particularly interesting way? I don't know, totally know what, where this is going as a question, but. <laughs> yeah, no, that's fine. Um, so Thebes seems to be relatively quiet in the archaic period. Um, part of that is because Thebes, like the rest of Boeotia, doesn't seem to take a big part in the Greek colonization movement, um, especially when you compare it to places like Corinth or the cities of Euboea. Um, and there's lots of different explanations for why that is. The most popular one seems to be that they, that Boeotia and the cities within it never actually reached the carrying capacity of their land until mm. the fifth or fourth century. And so they didn't have a need for exporting extra population uh, out of Greece. But that's just one theory as to why they didn't partake in the uh, colonization movement to the same extent as other cities in in mainland Greece. Um, we do see on the archaeological level, lots of different levels of Thebes. Uh, if you go to the Cadmea today and look down into previous excavations, you see all the different layers all the way from the Mycenaean period, all the way up through the iron age and the classical period. And then into um, the later fortress that gets built in the middle ages there. So there is a pretty big archeological record to draw from. uh, But in terms of the mentioning of Thebes in history, it doesn't get mentioned a ton Uh, Mm -hmm. gets mentioned in uh, the myth of Croesus. Uh, Croesus is meant to have dedicated some tripods in the Temple of Ismenion Apollo, which is the site uh, that I got to work on in Greece, uh, did not find the tripod of uh, of Croesus. But uh, you know, yeah. there there are inscriptions. <laughs> there are inscriptions as well from uh, sites that do end up um, from sites around the Temple of Ismenion Apollo that mention Croesus, which is kind of cool and ties back into the literature a little bit. Yeah, and then historically. You know, thinking about connections between Thebes and the East, Thebes actually sides with Persia in the Persian Wars. And the reasons for that are probably more pragmatic than anything else is that the rest of the Greeks kind of abandoned the defense of the North. Um, mm. The idea that eventually, that initially they were going to make their stand at uh, the Vale of Tempe, which is much further north, and then uh, the failed uh, maneuver at Thermopylae really leaves Boeotia exposed to the Persians. So the Thebans really don't have a choice. But you see that single act of siding with the Persians and not just siding with them, but um, wintering the Persian army at different points and also uh, fighting alongside the Persians at the Battle of Plataea, um, where the Theban cavalry play a pretty big role. Those are things that Thebes doesn't really live down for in the eyes of the other Greeks. And... You know, I always think about the this idea of the historical association with the East of being Persianizing or Medizing in Greek terms as somehow connecting back to they must know that there's some connection between the East and Boeotia and Thebes uh, in particular, because then you get all of these stories about you know, Dionysus, who is Theban, mm-hmm. right? His mother is uh, Semele, but who travels extensively in the East before uh, returning back to Thebes to destroy um, destroy <laughs> Pentheus in the Bacchae in quite, in quite epic ways. Yeah. Um, if anyone, if, I don't know how it took them so long to figure out that you don't mess with Dionysus. I mean, in, honestly. In any way, uh, ever. Uh, but, you know, you also get... Um, 
Heracles, obviously, is Theban, and Apollo plays a major role in Thebes as well. He's the main oracular god in Thebes. So there's a really a lot of association with mythology and the gods, and some of those uh, mythologies have connections back to the East as well, that you then see the Thebans siding with the Persians. Uh, they try to defend themselves later on by saying, now our government was not correct. It wasn't... Uh, equal oligarchy or an oligarchia isonomos is the term that uh, Thucydides uses for it. It was under kind of this despotism, this dynasteia that is meant to be bad. Um, so don't blame us for what the people in previous generations did, but they never quite live it down um, in the eyes of the other Greeks. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I, that, that makes sense. Like I didn't, I don't know why I didn't know. I'm kind of embarrassed that I didn't know that they fought with the Persians at Plataea. That feels hardcore. That's like a real yeah. choice to make. Yeah, and did it is. that happened all after Thermopylae then? Like it was, was Thermopylae kind of part of the reason they were like, nah, we can't kind of keep trying or? I mean, I think from the pragmatic perspective, yes. Um, there's some fuzziness about when they actually sent earth and water back to the king as a sign of their submission. Mm. Um, I think there's also a point where they might think, let's just do it and hedge our bets because if they don't show up, then whatever. Um, but if they do, then we have already, already done this and they're not alone in it. You see it with the Thessalian cities as well. Um, they all do it too. So it's really not surprising for them to side with the Persians because people forget most of Greece did. So right. it's really um, it's really Athens and Sparta that lead this uh, attack against the Persians, where there's a plenty of other cities that decide, you know what, we're just fine with Persian rule, um, or right. we're just going to side with them for now. I need to go back to Greek history class. My God, it's been way too long. I was out of, unfortunately, the most boring professor teaching my classes back then. <laughs> so it's like, I feel like it's all fallen out in favor of the mythology. Um, mm -hmm. But in, in talking about their connections to the East too, which is, is particularly interesting, I'm curious, I have this habit now of asking people about uh, this, but nobody ever has good has any answers, which I don't blame them. But there is late sourcing mythologically that ties Harmonia before she's with Cadmus to the island of Samothrace. And which also has these like really distinct Eastern kind of ties. And I'm curious if there's any kind of connection between that aspect and Thebes. If, or if you know. Yeah, I would have to. <laughs> yeah, I have to. I have to look this up if the Kibirioi are from Samothrace or not. Yes, but they are. They are. Okay. Yeah, that's yes, what I thought. Um, so sure. there is meant to be a shrine to the Kibirioi around Thebes as well. Ah. That would, would then reinforce that. Um, that connection between Harmonia and uh, Samoth race. Oh, that's great. I love that. Yeah. yeah, so I, yeah. It's, sometimes it's hard to remember exactly yeah. um, how, with all, as you've pointed out before, all the connections Thebes has um, throughout literature in the ancient world. It's tough to remember exactly um, who brings what. Oh, absolutely. No. And then the Kabiria, I think, are also from Lemnos, but they are distinctly a part of the, the Samothracian mystery cult. I mm -hmm. went over there uh, earlier this year because of a complete obsession with Samothrace that came through Harmonia. Um, but it, yeah, it's now like takes up most of my brain space. It's just like wondering all these things about this tiny, weird little island in the Northeast. <laughs> but I, yeah. I love that aspect because the Kibirioi in general are already kind of mysterious on Samothrace. So then to find that and the connection to Harmonia in Thebes is an added thrill for me. 
so okay the so I've also recently been recording episodes uh, to talk about Sparta in a big series and and mm-hmm. Thebes kind of came up there as well. I was speaking with someone about, um, you know, like the the kind of myth of Sparta, the, the Spartan mirage, like the idea that they were, you know, these like hyper uh, impressive warriors, you know, better than anyone else in Greece and everything. Um, but how they don't really have this came up that they, they don't really have the mythology to back that up in the same way that Thebes does. And that really interested me thinking about Thebes has this like really strong mythology that ties them to being warriors. Like you have the Cadmus and the the dragon teeth, but you also have the seven against Thebes and like these epic stories of myth that really suggest like they could be like, they could be the Spartans that we think of the Spartans as, you know, if that makes sense. Like, do they have like strong military ideas or yeah, what's what's going on there? Yeah. So some of their, some of their military prowess is also linked to their mythology. And I think that the Thebans have an awareness of their mythology that I think is really interesting. Uh, a lot of it comes through Heracles, right? Heracles being uh, Theban, because one thing that people forget is that Heracles leads this war against Orchomenos, uh, before he gets married to Megara. And then right. Orchomenos, sorry, Orchomenos is uh, this other city in Boeotia that is Thebes' main rival for power. They're referred to as the minions in a lot of texts, minion Orchomenos. Um, and mm. it's another powerful city also in Boeotia. And so the reflection of Heracles fighting against Orchomenos is also a reflection of the reality of Thebes in the historical period where they are fighting with Orchomenos for power over Boeotia uh, from the fifth century all the way down into the, into the fourth. So mm. there is that initial uh, connection, but then also just the shrine of Heracles, the Heracleion in Thebes is meant to be ancient. Uh, if I remember right, there are geometric uh, aspects of it as well. So it's very old compared to a lot of other shrines in greece and the club of heracles is the sigil on the theban shield at least in the fourth century they talk um xenophon talks about at the battle of mantinea in 362 the theban allies are painting their shields with the club of heracles because they want to make it look like there are more thebans than there Mm. actually are because the thebans are feared uh by the rest of the greeks at this point in in history and then the Theban sacred band, which mm-hmm. a lot of, uh, if you know something about the Theban military, it's usually about the sacred band, which is this elite unit of 300. The 300 number isn't unusual for the ancient world. There's lots of different groups that are 300 in number of warriors. But the unique thing about the Theban sacred band is that they are meant to have been uh, paired lovers. And it's not there's not a ton known about them, which is kind of infuriating because it would be an extremely interesting uh, case study in relationships in the the military and the way the philosophy of the military is structured in the ancient world. But there are some, uh, I think this comes up in Plutarch, where the members of the sacred band take a take an oath with each other at the tomb of Aeolus, who is one of the uh, lovers and companions of Heracles, right? And so there's also that connection there, right there in Thebes. And trying to think of another oh the other heracles connection is before the battle of leuctra 
the Thebans are kind of nervous because the Spartan army is right there and the, the other Boeotians are not feeling the fighting for that day. And they're trying to convince each other, the leaders of the Theban army are, of whether they should actually engage the Spartans or not. And it seems like Epaminondas has engineered this so that a messenger arrives from Thebes to tell them and the assembled army that the arms and armor of Heracles have disappeared from the temple of Heracles in Thebes. And so Epaminondas takes that and says, Heracles must have come back and taken up his armor and he's coming to fight alongside us in this battle. And that's motivation for the Thebans to then go and fight, which of course they, they then win. Um, so yeah, there is quite a bit of mythology actually in the military dynamic of Thebes. I love that. I always forget how much Heracles was Theban because he, he's such, I mean, he is like the character for like being spread across the whole of the Greek world and everyone wants a piece of him. And so, you know, you have like just uh, countless stories of him doing things everywhere you could possibly imagine just because everybody wanted this like connection to him but he really was so explicitly Theban so then I imagine like all of their their mythology is considerably older and their their ties to him are older in this way that it's it's great to hear they used it in so many ways or this Heracleon structure too it's just they really do have more mythology than like anywhere else and I think I often don't think about it so explicitly because I'm always in like bits and pieces of their myth, but like, it's just, mm -hmm. it's so much heavier than I think anywhere else in the Greek world in terms of like one place having its own distinct mythology, which they're clearly the best. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, you know, as you're saying, it's something that has so much depth to it and has so much variety to it as well across time. Cause you're, like you mentioned earlier, you know, we're not talking about just one generation of heroes. We're talking about successive generations of heroes and kings that all interact with some of the most important figures in Greek mythology and some of the other gods as well. And that's something that makes Thebes, you know, I think really, really unique. Um, and, you know, in terms of the mythological importance of Thebes in the historical period, you do get... Um, visitors to the uh, Temple of Ismedian Apollo as an oracle, uh, as an oracular site. The mm. oracle there is an ash is an ash oracle. So you would burn something, and then the movement of the ash could be interpreted as it uh, flies up into the into the sky. But it kind of gets superseded by the Oracle at Delphi because right. the Oracle at Delphi has greater Panhellenic significance, whereas the Oracle of Ismedian Apollo seems to have more regional significance. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. I didn't know about that. I mean, I know of the Ismenian Apollo just generally, specifically because mm -hmm. that's the the Ismenian is the dragon too, right? Like it's named for the spring around there, so it's all kind of named for that. Is that right? Am I remembering correctly? Yeah. So the spring of Aries is meant to have been around the uh, the Ismenian somewhere. Um, okay. Yeah. But yes, and the the story is linked between those. Uh, yeah. Between those things. It's yeah, I mean, they really also have such explicit ties to deities and so many of them now that I'm thinking about mm -hmm. it more, because one of the things that that most interests me about Cadmus and Harmonia is the idea that like, not only is he one of the major Greek heroes and he's from the East, he's explicitly not Greek, which in itself, of course, in Greek myth is like inherently interesting because mm -hmm. they had such 
strong ideas about people who weren't Greek. Um, uh-huh. And so to, to have him not only not be Greek, but also to be the only hero who, who marries a goddess. And she is the only goddess who, who marries a mortal, but also who like then goes on to live as a mortal exclusively. And we have like no references to her doing anything divine or, or really anything like that. But that, that to me, that makes her more interesting because not only she's not just a minor goddess either, right? Like she's the daughter of Aphrodite and Ares. She is ostensibly mm-hmm. an incredibly important goddess. She's the daughter of two Olympians. And then she just goes and marries this hero and and then of course you know their wedding too has all of this this story attached to it being it's like one of the only two where the gods actually were all in attendance and there's just so many things that make this place so impressive because you know that aside then you go on to like they become the grandparents of Dionysus and he's the only god that is half immortal and is also like you said from the east and from Thebes simultaneously and then the Heracles connection too being the only hero that becomes deified is like it just now that I'm thinking about it all they really do have not only the most mythology of any place but also the most ties to like explicitly divine characters more than just you know heroes like the rest of greece and what's really wild about that is a lot of that is established in texts that aren't boeotian right Mm, like mm -hmm. i mean you have you have pindar who is theban and then you have uh, hesiod who is from ascara so he's boeotian but for the most part when you're talking about the really the fleshing out of the characters of theban mythology you're really talking about the athenian dramatists which is kind of odd that we don't have a ton from thebes itself in terms of literature to build their own mythology so the mythology that we're getting is actually implanted on them by the athenians Mm -hmm. uh, which you know it's it would be interesting to hear what an ancient theban has to say about the depiction of thebes in really anything that an athenian wrote well yeah and and aside from from the tragedies they're really it's all really piecemeal like you you really have to pull it all together from so many different minor surviving sources because there isn't any kind of surviving like epic about Thebes um which does make me think though too like do you have any thoughts on the Theban cycle and its existence and and anything in that realm yeah I mean I think it's really interesting and I think you've talked on a previous podcast about Tiresias, so I won't mm-hmm. go over that again. But other than to say that Tiresias is extremely important um, in Theban mythology, um, Oedipus and the Sphinx are also uh, important. I think the Theban cycle is uh, is really interesting. It kind of sends messages that beat you over the head with things that are so obvious to the audience, but that's part of the tragedy, right? The idea that everyone in the audience knows what is going on except Oedipus. Uh, Mm -hmm. But I think, yeah, I think that the Theban cycle in some ways, and I don't mean to like hurt Sophocles feelings with this, even though I can't because he's (laughs) been dead for thousands of years. uh, I think that's almost the most boring of all of the versions of myth that we get about Thebes. Um, I'm with you. I think the Cadmus myth is much more interesting. I think anything around Dionysus and Thebes is way more interesting. Uh, And I think Heracles and Thebes is way more interesting. Than, yeah. than the myth of Oedipus. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting because of what we know about Oedipus, where like it's 
it is so tied to Sophocles and it, it reminds me kind of of like Euripides' Medea where it, it's kind of like what did these guys invent and what was pre-existing in myth and I would love to know that and it makes me think too of like the 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 epic cycle that might have been might have existed about Thebes right that we don't have anything of but we have like the idea that it was a thing that there was like an epic poem dedicated to Thebes and if I recall it's more like seven against Thebes time period but to me it's also like why is why wasn't there a lost epic about Cadmus like who how is that not like an epic poem (laughs) and of course then like I'm the ridiculous person who has read a huge swath of Nonus's Dionysiaca because that's <laughs> all we have on like it, for any kind of like lengthy story of theirs but it's utter yeah. madness the, yeah the story of Dionysus is meant to drive you mad like yeah. Dionysus uh, at, while <laughs> reading it is a good description of Nonus yeah 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 I and I just I will take anything Cadmus and Harmony which is why but I've thankfully only had to read mostly the first few books that actually feature them and then I leave it all behind but uh it is just so interesting to me that that like the sourcing itself is so lacking or in the case of Oedipus like I really I don't know I'm always so curious about what what Sophocles did invent versus what was actually pre-existing and then of course I mean that that play always just fascinates me generally just the the questions of of everyone involved are you still searching for your perfect place to call home well now is the time to buy at fisher homes if you're looking to move in before the end of 2024 may could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end if you're hoping to move in even sooner fisher homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you where you can start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home good sleep should come naturally and with the new natural hybrid mattress it can a collaboration between award-winning mattress brand lisa and home design favorite west elm the natural hybrid is the culmination of these two companies shared values premium materials meticulous craftsmanship and sustainable practices made with natural latex responsibly sourced natural wool and environmentally safe foams the natural hybrid elevates your sleep sanctuary indulge your senses and supports a greener tomorrow. Plus, when you purchase the natural hybrid, you're also helping fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Since 2015, Lisa has donated more than 40,000 mattresses to ensure children and families have a safe place to sleep. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash iHeart. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant 
the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Um, Oh, but that made me think, sorry, now my brain's going to jump to a bunch of different topics, but my favorite uh, in terms of maybe not beating out Oedipus, Tyranno specifically, but the other two uh, in the cycle would be, I I covered that story by looking at Euripides' Phoenician women instead, Uh because I think that then is another really fascinating look at what is going on in Thebes. Like, again, it's another from an Athenian perspective, but it's. I think it's kinder to Thebes. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah. And you know, things like that. I think I also think about the, I also think about the play by Aeschylus um, Persians of one thing mm-hmm. I always ask my students whenever we re- read Persians is, okay, how Persian is this? And <laughs> the answer is probably not at all. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, when you think about, when you think about plays about Thebes um, and like, Phoenician women. Okay, how much did they really know about the cultural aspects of this and the consciousness of like the blending of cultures or or something like that? Um that's always the thing that I think about when I read tragedy of just it'd be really nice to get a version of this that wasn't hyped for an Athenian audience or wasn't designed to impress an Athenian audience so that its writer could win a competition. Mm-hmm. And that's also something that people forget when they read Greek tragedy is that the Athenians are supposed to like it because they want to win, right? The, the uh, author wants to win a competition. So I think that's something that often gets overlooked as well. This like agonistic or competitive aspect of Greek tragedy. Well, absolutely. And, and the idea, like as much as it's, yeah, it's about the audience liking it and, and winning this contest, but also Athens as a place is very pro Athens, you know? Like they are very high on themselves. They want Athens to always be the best. And so I think that that almost certainly really influenced the way that Thebes is portrayed. I personally feel it more in like the Oedipus uh, plays by by Sophocles than than Euripides. But I I mean, I'm also super biased because I obsess over Euripides compared to anyone else. But but Mm -hmm. like Phoenician women and Bacchae, I mean, they're not particularly kind to Thebes but I do think that they are a little bit kinder than Sophocles of course that's also been a really long time since I read Sophocles I'm realizing now but yeah yeah I mean the the Athenians the Athenians have no interest in making Thebes look good that's yeah that's for sure um and you know I think um oh the Athenian brand building I think bringing that up is spot on there uh Joanna Hannig wrote a book a little bit a little while ago that was just called how Athens built its brand. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's all about the self-consciousness of Athens in creating their own brand for future generations. And you get a sense of this, like in the Greek historians as well, when Herodotus and Thucydides both talk about the kind of fickleness of time and how, if you look at the ruins of one city, you might think it was 10 times greater than it was. Uh, You might think today that it was 10 times greater than it was at its peak than it actually was. Or you might look at another city that doesn't have any ruins and think, oh, it must not have been that important when it really, really was. And it's interesting to me to see these ancient Greek historians basically calling 2000 years in advance exactly what was going to happen to our interpretation of the ancient world where Athens gets this place that is so much outsized of its real reach and Sparta Sparta as well gets an outsized influence. But yeah, this idea that you look at some structures or something like that, like, Oh, the city has to be important. So I'm going to research it more or write about it more. Um, and then it just becomes a cycle and uh, the cycle of athenocentrism. Yeah. Yeah. And I, that's just something I try to remind my listeners like as often as I can in the past couple of years when I've sort of realized all of that, because I mean, that's all true of Athens generally. And then you add to it that like primarily what we have in terms of sourcing all comes from Athens. And so it just like all plays on itself, like piling up this idea that Athens was somehow like way bigger, more impressive, all these different things. And it's purely a matter of like, well, what we have to read and look at is from Athens. So that doesn't mean that that's all there was at the time. It's just what we have now. And then it's sort of finding a way, you know, especially as somebody who's like, I don't know if I should still call myself an amateur, but like certainly in the history I am. Uh, But like looking at that and then trying to wrap your head around it without having the the full background of like you know the academic world and everything too like just as a regular person kind of coming to greek history and trying to understand the the intricacies of of like athens versus everyone else yeah and i mean don't you don't want to give the academic world too much credit about uh, <laughs> emphasizing voices that are not Athens because the academic world is the reason that Athenocentrism exists. Um, true, true. <laughs> and it's, it's still very much, still very much alive, but you know, in the last um, several decades, there has been this real like branching out uh, looking at other perspectives and other cities and realizing that the Greek world is a lot more diverse than, than people think it is. People think the, I think the public in general thinks of the Greek world as this very homogenous state or this idea that there is Greek culture, it's fairly monolithic, the Greeks are for freedom. Uh, whereas we've already talked about how a lot of Greeks thought saw the idea of Greece versus Persia and said, yeah, I'm going to go on the Persia side. Uh, it doesn't really matter that much who I'm paying taxes to, uh, if I'm still paying taxes to somebody. So like, yeah, this idea that the Greek world is actually hundreds of different cultures, rather than one singular culture is something that academia is getting much better at emphasizing, but something that hasn't quite caught on in the public eye yet for lots of different reasons. Yeah. Well, it, it, it is difficult to, to get that out into the world when everything has been so based on the idea of just like Sparta and Athens forever. And I mm-hmm. say Sparta in that case specifically, because if we're talking pop culture, like it's so heavily Sparta in their own kind of like problematic and weird way. Um, but, you know, and and it. I think it also between the two, you get this like really distinct two different ideas and then you have to kind of reconcile it 
with like, okay, well, this like monolith idea of Greece, but then we have these two very different places and and it, it is interesting navigating it in terms of like just speaking with the general public about it it's why i'm doing a whole big series on sparta as well because yeah. they have their own shit going on like <laughs> messing with them um but it, it also makes me think of the idea you know the idea of like oh democracy being born in greece and greek being the first de- democracy all these different things and it's like yeah i mean athens had a democracy really briefly and it was Athens and it's you know and it's like once you actually drill down into the the actual the actuality of it it's like so much less I guess not to like you know put them down because obviously I love ancient Greece more than anything but like it's a lot less impressive than I think that we as a culture now are be are led to believe yeah and you're I mean when you're talking about Athens and Sparta you're talking about these two outliers in terms of Greek political formation, right? Like Sparta has an oligarchy, but it's an extremely weird oligarchy. Yeah. Where um, you'll be talking about in your uh, Sparta series. But then you look at, go to look at Thebes and its surrounding region of Boeotia, and they build a freaking federal state at the same time that Athens is building a democracy. I mean, the Boeotian League is an organized federal state with a federal assembly uh, that meets in Thebes with certain numbers of representatives from each district. And it's extremely complex. And the part of the reason that that doesn't get talked uh, talked about as much is that we didn't really know that much about it until the turn of the 20th century, because the reason that we know the Boeotian constitution, even in its temporary form or its like fragmentary form, um, is because of the Oxyrhynchus papyri that oh. uh, were excavated in Egypt. And the Hellenica Oxyrhynchia, which is partially on that papyri is what gives us the rundown of the Boeotian constitution. So Boeotia is very late to the party in terms of what the wider world knew knows about um, their actual governmental structure. That's fascinating. So what does that mean exactly? Like, I don't know, governmental structures. So yeah, yeah. like what is that? Sorry, I have a cat jumping off of me. Uh, yeah. What, what does that mean in terms of, of the Theban government? Yeah, so there's a lot of debate about uh, whether the Theban government itself, particularly in the 4th century, uh, was democratic or oligarchic. Traditionally, at least in the 5th century, when that federal state is formed, it's almost certainly an oligarchy. Um, and oligarchy is a spectrum in the ancient world, right? The, mm. There's very, very narrow oligarchy that's called dynasteia, where a very few number of families exercise power, or there's moderate oligarchy, which seems to be what Thebes had, where you have a bar for citizenship. Usually it's something along the lines of what's called the hoplite census, where if you can equip yourself with the armor of a hoplite, then you are able to be um, a citizen. So they seem to have this moderate oligarchy, and that seems to be their traditional form of government. But then they gradually branch out to these other cities of Boeotia and begin forming this federal state that is made up of districts. And there are 11 of them in the version of the constitution that we have, or the description of the constitution that we have. And they uh, have a certain number of counselors. Um, they have to, they get to send 60 counselors that get elected locally within the district. And the districts themselves are made up kind of weirdly. So Thebes controls two of the districts initially out of the 11, which is pretty fair because Thebes is a bigger city. And then Orkomenos controls two um, and Plataea controls uh, two as well. But then Thebes goes and takes over Plataea, uh, which is part of the Peloponnesian War. 
a lot of people would say it's the start of the Peloponnesian War. Uh, and then Thebes absorbs their representation. So Thebes now has four out of 11, uh, which gives them a pretty big influence in the federal assembly. And so from that point on, you really think about this larger federal state that's dominated by Thebes, um, but they still try and play it off as, sure, everyone has a voice, like we're letting all these little cities come together and send representatives to the assembly. There's also a military levy requirement. You have to send, uh, Egypt district has to send a thousand hoplites and a hundred cavalry to this combined federal army. Um, so yeah, it's very organized and complex. Uh, later in the fourth century, when they refound the Boeotian League after Thebes gets liberated, uh, like I talked about earlier, they end up writing some decrees in the language of the Confederacy. So it's not talking about Thebes making a treaty with somebody. It's about the Boeotians as a whole, and that represents the Boeotian federal state. So all the local governments within that get to do whatever they want on the local level. But just like most federal governments, they cede um, their military forces and they cede their foreign policy to the federal state. That is so interesting. I, yeah, had no idea. Uh, that, yeah, that's just. I mean, that's way cooler than general. democracy, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's much more intricate. Yeah. And like, I, I, again, I, and I don't know enough about like the Athenian history either, but their democracy didn't last very long if I do understand it correctly. Uh, I mean, in and, historical in terms. And you can also yeah. debate about whether, the, when the democracy actually started and right. what reforms actually made democracy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so this is sort of jumping around again, but I, sure. now I'm curious about um, the the it, like Thebes much, much earlier. So you mentioned earlier, um, like Mycenaean ruins. So what kind of uh-huh. uh, situation was there do, that we know of, like in the Bronze Age? Yeah. So we know that Thebes is fairly powerful in the Bronze Age, there have been uh, lots of tablets that have been excavated that are linear B tablets from Thebes that indicate that power. Uh, the palatial palatial uh, structure, you use that term kind of loosely when you talk about Mycenaean, uh, mm-hmm. Mycenaean Greece. But uh, the palatial structure is certainly there uh, as well. So it is certainly a Mycenaean hub in Greece too, which I think contributes and also helps explain the double foundation myth, right? If if the Mm -hmm. um, Easterners come in later than that, then you already have a rich local tradition that you then have to incorporate this new group moving in into. So I think that's why you get some sources that switch the order of Cadmus and Amphion and Zethus, where Amphion and Zethus are actually older. Um, That's much fewer than the ones that have it the other way, where Cadmus is actually the first. Because in terms of development it's easier to explain like Cadmus builds a little part that's the Cadmea. And then as Thebes expands, it has a bigger circuit wall and that's built by Amphion and Zathus. So yeah, Mycenaean Thebes is very powerful, but it doesn't get a whole lot of attention in the Homeric texts. Um, Thebes doesn't appear in the catalog of ships in the Iliad. Um, there's a place called Hypothebe in the catalog of ships that, um, that some people take to be like prehistoric Thebes, but Again, that's like anybody's anybody's guess with that. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting because one thing I always kind of note too um, when like thinking about the Iliad is how brief mentions of Athens are, but they're still like there is, they do come up. Like, are they in the catalog of ships? Is that like there's like the one 
reference. I don't know if you know offhand, but I know there's like uh, one. I don't have the reference. catalog of ships memorized. So no. <laughs> yeah, oh, weird, weird. I don't know. I've, <laughs> right. I've got it all memorized. It seems like a great uh, way to spend yeah, time. <laughs> yeah. I have read it yeah. word for word on the podcast, uh, but thankfully that was like two years ago now. <laughs> Um, but it's yeah I know there's like at least one reference to Athens but I brought that up um with another guest that I've had on in the past to talk about Homeric text specifically and and he was saying um that that might have been a later Athenian invention when it was finally put you know into the record of what we have now versus like what was necessarily older and I wonder if that like relates to Thebes as well whether something was pulled out even could have been yeah uh, we certainly know that the Athenians are perfectly happy to uh, chisel, chisel names off of things um, <laughs> and add uh, their own things people, in. <laughs> yeah. Or kick people out of, uh, out of leagues and say that they never existed or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Athenians. Yeah. That, yeah. that's the thing that fascinates me too. I mean, it, and it connects back to the idea of not having any kind of like real surviving Epic that, that features Thebes heavily, even though they are so heavily involved in like the broader, mythology of Greece in such an interesting way. Yeah. And then, I mean, if you're thinking of Homer and Hesiod as fairly contemporaneous, you do mm-hmm. get like Cadmus and Cadmus's descendants all listed in, in Hesiod, um, mm-hmm. or at least, or at least talked about in terms of um, awareness. But like if Hesiod is Boeotian, then there is pretty much no way that he wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't mention that. Um, so yeah, there, that's there's true. probably some local bias there too. Yeah, yeah. It, it, is that in? Are they mentioned in Theogony or or works and days? I believe they're mentioned in the Theogony. Yeah. Um, okay. But I will Turn look that up as soon as the podcast ends. No, don't worry. So can I <laughs> yeah. have them all? Uh, but yeah. it's just interesting. I mean, I know works and days is. I've not read the whole of that. Um, but it, yeah, it's it's always so just it's so fascinating thinking about the ancient sources that do and do not survive and like what we don't know and you know i could talk about that forever um but i think thebes is such a good example of that in a way that i hadn't really thought of before of questioning kind of what is there let alone what we've talked about already in the the athenian bias on on almost everything (laughs) Mm -hmm. but particularly thebes like they really did they and I, i mean i think probably in large part it's because thebes had this mythology that they could draw on like this mythology that the whole of the like the Athenian people were aware of it. Everyone knows of these stories coming from Thebes, so we might as well, you know, pull them and and make our changes, whether we're making Thebes look good or not. Uh, mm-hmm. I was wondering what about Bacchae specifically. Like, I don't think it makes Thebes look that bad. It certainly makes Pentheus look bad, but it is right. interesting. Like wondering the the sort of process behind that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, does the average Athenian think they're going to get torn to shreds if they go to Thebes? Is that yeah. your Dionysus, right? Like, is that, um, is that something that's a real worry in, in ancient Athens? <laughs> exactly. Like, are we, are we really, are we blame, putting enough blame on Pentheus or are we thinking the, the broader, like Thebes <laughs> in general or, or Dionysus in general is gonna, gonna get you torn to shreds? Um, I mean, I do think that's a pretty spot on idea, but all, deities like you should probably not insult them in any kind of substantial way like it's not you mm-hmm. know it's not unique <laughs> to back but it's just right. the most violent i would say mm-hmm. uh yeah oh it's just it's so fascinating to think about the the way these things tie into their mythology as well so in, in terms of uh like the historical aspect did other than you know you mentioned a couple of the the heracles connections was that was that the character that they 
were most kind of aligning themselves with in, in terms of like real world or, or did they often link back to, to more? Uh, yeah, I think, you know, they obviously reference the Cadmea. Uh, so they, Cadmus is right. ever present in their uh, imagination. Good. But yeah, I think Heracles in terms of, in terms of being a symbol for the city really stands out uh, among the others. There is a old temple to Dionysus, um, or a shrine to Dionysus there as well as you would expect. Um, they are meant to have kept the like area where Semele and Harmonia lived kind of off limits to people as well as kind of this sacred space. So mm. uh, yeah, that comes up in Pausanias about how uh, he talks about they don't let people in there. Um, and so there's, there's quite a bit of mythology, but in terms of like outward expression of that mythology, I think Heracles is the clearest uh, yeah. out of all of their their heroes and gods. That makes sense. Heracles kind of mm-hmm. became that for so many, so many places, mm-hmm. and they had the the biggest claim to him. Um, oh, I love that. I need to read more Pausanias too. I've been sort of increasing my fascination with him lately. Just such an interesting way of looking at like the stuff that we don't know because it's all lost and he thankfully looked around and wrote things down like thank god for him (laughs) yeah 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 so um is there any other like i don't know fun particularly nerdy theban fact or story you want to share do you do you want to talk about the pseudo archaeology of thieves oh yes please thank you for bringing that up (laughs) i forgot about that entirely Um, yeah so uh i designed and teach a course on uh, pseudo-archaeology, and it has a lot of uh, references to ancient aliens, and we kind of pick apart what pseudo-archaeology is and why it exists. But pseudo-archaeology kind of affects everything in the ancient world. So there's a couple things in Thebes that do have claims about them. Um, both relate to uh, Amphion and Zethus, actually, which is kind of Amazing. interesting that yeah. they would um, they would both target those things um one is the actual tomb uh, the amphion which is a uh, mycenaean tomb that is in thebes um, it was robbed in antiquity so we don't really know what was buried there but like pottery fragments and things like that date it to mycenaean period um and so there was an excavator um uh, named Sparopolis in the 70s who looked at the hill where the tomb is And said, hey, you know, that looks kind of like a pyramid. And Mm. he thought, well, you know, we also have this um, this legend of the Sphinx that deals with Thebes. It's like integral to the Oedipus myth as well. Uh, So I wonder if there's a connection between us and Egyptian Thebes. And he kind of puts this out there that it's actually a step pyramid that was created in Thebes. that represents like a connection to ancient Egypt. And he doesn't bring up aliens because ancient astronaut theory hadn't, um, <laughs> hadn't come about yet. Uh, but it certainly would be, uh, would be now, but there are still people that think like, yes, that is, and you look at it and you do see the steps, but they don't include that that was done in the modern period, like as they were kind of moving dirt around and changing the topography of their city. So it's pretty modern um, in terms of what it looks for. But there are still people that think, yeah, this is um, this is a pyramid and this has links to Egypt. And maybe it went the other way. Maybe we taught the Egyptians how to make the pyramids. Oh, no. Right. So, yeah. So there which 
you know, you kind of get on the level of, uh, you know, I want to make my city as important as possible. So you can't blame people for wanting to put, um, put their mark on, on history. And I think that's also something before I talk about the other thing of, um, you know, when you're talking about archaeology, and I try and talk to my students a lot about this, or in pseudo archaeology, you, you don't want to come in and tell people that they're stupid for mm-hmm. believing this stuff, because they probably didn't have a real like investment or research in it. They just saw it on TV or read about it in the paper or something like that and thought, oh, that's cool and didn't do anything beyond that. And you're also never going to change people's minds if you start off by calling them stupid. So you can totally critique like all of the people that propagate those theories, like all the people on Ancient Aliens and all those other shows. You could absolutely slam them all you want uh, because they are out there propagating this that they they have to know it's wrong. But mm-hmm. for like the average for the average person, you really have to think about, okay, what is their investment in this story? And then approach it in a way that makes them still feel valued and still retain an aspect of their identity, but also allows them to be like a more critical consumer of information about their past. So mm-hmm. in talking about archaeology, if you believe in ancient aliens or anything like that, I am not attacking you in particular. <laughs> um, you know, it's just, it's something that academics need to think more carefully about in the way that we approach pseudo-archaeology. Because mm-hmm. the other thing that uh, Thebes kind of gets in pseudo-archaeological territory is, is the actual construction of the walls of Thebes by Amphion and Zethus. Because uh, they're meant to have had a liar that was gifted by Hermes that had magical powers that allowed them to move the stones into place by playing the lyre. Mm-hmm. And that's not, it's not something that's even uncommon, even in ancient Greek literature. If you read um, stories about Orpheus, for example, like right before Orpheus's death, he's meant to have been playing and it stops all the projectiles kind of matrix style. Um, mm-hmm. Or at least that's the way that I, that I think about it. That's um, exactly what so, it sounds like in the, in the work. I agree completely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so the, so the idea of music having power um, to move things isn't unique to uh, Thebes, but it then gets transitioned into, Hey, look at these giant stones. Like there's no way they could have moved them, even though there are lots of ways they could have moved them um, mm-hmm. in the, in the ancient world. So maybe the liar is actually, you know, like a piece of alien technology oh and they're levitating all of these stones because that then gets into uh, construction theories of like Stonehenge and the pyramids and the idea of alien technology being used and having a device that controls that, those stones, the idea that it's like a tablet or something like that, that the aliens like gave to ancient yeah. peoples to move these stones around is something that is still prevalent. Uh, there's an episode of ancient aliens like this season about it. So oh. uh, thankfully they did not mention the tomb of Amphion and Zethus or the walls of Amphion and Zethus, but it's very much in line with what they talk yeah. about uh, frequently on that show. I, I don't want to jump to the, the idea though, that they didn't mention it because, uh, cause of the whiteness and Western, civilization aspect because it seems to me i don't watch any ancient aliens i'll admit but like okay what i hear (laughs) yeah no no i've i've already i've I've done episodes on this as well um Mm -hmm. but you know it it seems to me that primarily it's all about trying to disprove the things that people who weren't like had didn't (laughs) didn't have our modern notions of whiteness attached to them and so you they don't often come for greece uh because Mm -hmm. greece has all the western world attributes you know so (laughs) right 
you know, it, yeah. it unfortunately doesn't surprise me, but that is, that is so interesting. I, uh, I, I did a series on Atlantis in January. I don't know if you're familiar with that. I'd done that, but I, I spoke to um, David Anderson about pseudoarchaeology. As, oh yeah. As well as like other people. The, yeah. yeah the, re- the real expert on it. <laughs> yeah. It was wonderful. Yeah. No, he came on to talk all about it. And so did um, Steph Helmhofer, who's from BC actually as well. And, and she looks at it a little bit less in ancient Greece, but more at just like the broader aspects of it and utterly fascinating, but it's, it's definitely something I'm happy to talk about on the show a lot. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's so interesting to me. I, I actually very recently, um, reconnected with a friend I hadn't seen in years. And so like, he hadn't, we hadn't, we hadn't hung out like since this had become my job where I like spend my entire life talking about the ancient world and particularly with, with like people like yourself. Um, and he brought up ancient aliens at one point and just it's so interesting the way a lot of people come to it as as like just entertainment they're like these guys are goofy they have some ideas like i like the idea of aliens it's harmless and i think that that's like it there's that's not an a, a idea to be faulted like i can understand how people come to it is that they're like i don't believe that the aliens built the pyramids i'm just interested in aliens generally and like these guys are kooky and you know the one has the weird hair and that's really cool i know um and so like it's so easy to just fall into it and be like hey maybe they have some interesting ideas even if i don't believe all of it or whatever and and i think Uh you don't often see the darker side of it or the the racism that's under the surface until it's brought to attention and so like one of the first things I tell my friend is like I'm really sorry to like break this to you but like keep in mind that everything they're trying to do is like disprove what like ancient people we would that have darker skin were doing and and like just think about what that really means and I kind of just like watched his face fall and like brain break where you're like right yeah I know it's a lot if you think about kind of under the surface what they're doing like it's it's Mm -hmm. pretty dark (laughs) yeah and uh, yeah and as you say I think that part of the appeal is just that it can be people think of it as mindless entertainment right of uh, Mm -hmm. you know I can't tell you the number of times I've been at a party and somebody says oh you know you study ancient history what do you think of ancient aliens and i'm like well you know it's they they ask a lot of questions with very little answers about things um and they say oh yeah no i just watch it for fun i don't really believe in it and then there's like a distinct pause and then they say but could it be real yeah (laughs) or like i saw a good idea like this one idea actually was really interesting or like yeah you can Uh you can find pieces in it that that then you do think oh maybe they've got a point or yeah yeah because i mean they're they're right in the sense that there is a lot of mystery about the ancient world but some of the things Mm -hmm. that they talk about are not mysteries anymore yeah Um, but But they're just not talking to the right people who have the answer right right um because it's much more fun to cosplay as indiana jones and run around um Mm -hmm. and look at look at things um but yeah i think this idea that you know, there's a lot of mystery in the ancient world. There's a lot of stuff we don't know. We've talked about a ton of stuff that we don't know about ancient Thebes uh, in the in our conversation today. And it would be great to have more sources on all of that. Uh, but then the direction that they go after that is is what's problematic. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then the the inherent minimizing of the accomplishments of of ancient people and typically people uh-huh. who aren't associated with the like quote unquote founding of Western civilization. It's like, you know. Yep. 
it takes a lot for them to come to Greece because then they have to actually account for the fact that like they've already attributed Western world to a place like Greece. You can't, you can't then say they didn't do it. So you have to go to mm-hmm. Egypt and South America <laughs> right. and all of this. It's like, Oh God, it's just, yeah, it's as soon as you start thinking about it, it's, it's pretty, pretty damn cringy slash mm-hmm. super dangerous at times as well. But uh, yeah. it's definitely something I'm happy to to talk about on my show and make sure that people are aware of it. <laughs> Yeah, but the, those are the two pseudo archaeological theories of Thebes. I'm sure there's more um, that will that will emerge. Like, I don't want to throw any potential ones out there because hopefully the <laughs> yeah, really. history producer, hopefully the history producers don't listen to this this uh, <laughs> show and think, oh, that's gold, and start writing this stuff down. Um, but yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. sure there will be more out there. Yeah, I bet. Oh man, that's fascinating. I yeah, I'm always down to hear about those purely because it's also interesting as much as we want to also counter <laughs> counter those ideas. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, this has been absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for doing this. I'm so thrilled to learn more about Thebes. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Yeah. I'm glad to talk about it anytime. Good. I'm so glad. Um, do you want to tell my listeners uh, like where they can learn more from you? I don't know if you have any books or anything to promote or Twitter or what have you, whatever you want to share. Uh, yeah, sure. So uh, you can get in touch with me via Twitter or follow me on Twitter um, at Prof Biosha, P-R-O-F-B-O-E-O-T-I-A uh, on Twitter. Uh, I don't have any uh, work on Thebes out, uh, coming out in the near future, um, but maybe that will be something that will change. So I'm always happy to talk about Thebes um, or anything related to Biosha and the ancient world. Very fun. Well, thank you. Oh, nerds, nerds, nerds. Uh, Once again, I do love a good conversation episode. So huge thank you to Michael for chatting with me about my favorite place in all of ancient Greece. If you're an expert and you have a topic in the ancient Mediterranean, historical, mythological, or otherwise that you want to share on my show, please do reach out. I'll be looking at scheduling in some new guests in the new year, and I would always love to hear from any experts out there, particularly if you have some weird and wonderful thing to share. There's a form on my website, it's mythsbaby.com slash contact, and you can fill in all your information. Also, a reminder to submit your questions for the New Year Q&A episode that will come out in January. Shoot your questions to me at mythsbaby.com slash questions so that I can answer all of your burning mythological or otherwise questions on that episode. You all know I love a good Q&A episode, and not least because it means I don't have to write 5,000 words of a script. Huzzah. Let's Talk About Myths Baby is written and produced by me, Liv Albert. Michaela Smith is the Hermes to my Olympians and handles so many podcast-related things, from running the YouTube to creating promotional images and videos to editing and research. Stephanie Foley works to transcribe the podcast for YouTube captions and accessibility. The podcast is hosted and monetized by Acast. Help me continue bringing you the world of Greek mythology and the ancient Mediterranean by becoming a patron where you'll get bonus episodes and more. Visit patreon.com slash mythsbaby or click the link in this episode's description. Thank you all so much for listening. You're super cool. I am Liv and I love this shit. Are you
Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Good sleep should come naturally, and with the new Natural Hybrid Mattress, it can. A collaboration between award-winning mattress brand Lisa and home design favorite West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is the culmination of these two companies' shared values. Premium materials, meticulous craftsmanship, and sustainable practices. Made with natural latex, responsibly sourced natural wool, and environmentally safe foams, the Natural Hybrid elevates your sleep sanctuary. Indulge your senses and supports a greener tomorrow. Plus, when you purchase the natural hybrid, you're also helping fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Since 2015, Lisa has donated more than 40,000 mattresses to ensure children and families have a safe place to sleep. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash iHeart. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota.